Hello and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Tom Nagorski. There are few leaders in Asia or anywhere in the world with as much experience in the international spotlight as Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan. Before he was a politician, Khan was an iconic athlete who helped his country win the Cricket World Cup in 1992. He was also a celebrity whose playboy reputation was regular fodder for the London tabloids. Khan left that world behind when he immersed himself in Pakistani politics. And in 2018, after many years on the periphery of power, he was elected prime minister. It hasn't been easy. To Pakistan's east, India is governed by Narendra Modi, an outspoken nationalist. To the west is Afghanistan, a country beset by instability and war. India and the United States have accused Pakistan of backing terrorism in Kashmir and elsewhere. And foreign policy aside, Pakistan is a country of some 200 million people, a country that faces enormous domestic challenges. This past August, tensions with India escalated sharply when India took an unprecedented step in Kashmir, long a flashpoint for the two nations. India announced it was ending the so-called special status of the Kashmir region, an arrangement that for 70 years had granted at least some autonomy to the people of Kashmir. India sent in thousands of troops, cut internet and phone lines. The Indian government said the move was necessary for stability and safety, and as a counterweight to acts of violence for which India has long blamed Pakistan. All of this was the backdrop for a recent conversation at the Asia Society in New York. Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan, in a wide-ranging discussion with our president and CEO, Josette Shirin. She asked Imran Khan how the international community had been responding to his pleas to pressure India on Kashmir. Look, you know, I, I believe that we could only try our best. The rest, you, you know, you leave it to the Almighty. Now, I have tried my best. In the media, I've tried to make people understand I've spoken to leaders, all, all, almost all the leaders I've spoken to. Uh, I think I have made them understand. They might not be moving right now, but I feel that what uh, the Modi government has done, it's boxed itself in by taking the step. I don't think uh, they have really thought through what they have done, because uh, I don't know what is the thinking that what happens. Have they thought through that when they lift the curfew, what will happen? Do they think that the people of Kashmir will now, after the, the almost, what, 100,000 Kashmiris have died in the last 30 years? Do they think that they will now accept uh, the status quo just because some parliament has passed a resolution illegally taking away their right, which was given to them by the United Nations of self-determination? So in so what do I think? I think that unless the world community, first of all, it, it should be aware of what's happening, and I think it is. Secondly, as if things did begin to deteriorate, they should be able to move. The UN has to move or the world community because you cannot let it go beyond a certain point because it would eventually uh, put two nuclear-armed countries uh, facing each other, and that that has to be prevented at every uh, stage. It must be, I mean, action must be taken now. And just to clarify on this point, because some, there's been some media saying that you are issuing a threat of a 
possible war. Issuing a threat, is it issuing a threat or telling the world that be careful before it is too late? Warning the world that this is, I mean, it's common sense. We, I still, you know, as children, we still remember this uh, Cuban crisis where it took place. For years, the world talked about it. Why was there a Cold War? Because the world was petrified of the idea of the other war, because there were two nuclear armed states. So, I mean, it is common sense that you should be careful. You, look, let me, let me uh, you know, when you say a threat, <clears throat> February, 3.30 a.m. in the morning, my army chief and air, air chief called me up and said, Indian jets have bombed Pakistan. What do we do? We had already decided that if, because we could see they were, they were getting ready to bomb us through the radar. So uh, we had, uh, our Air Force had locked up some targets in India. Now question, it was 3.30 a.m. Was there any loss of life, I asked. Had there been loss of life, then they would have immediately retaliated. Because it was dark, we didn't know. So we waited, and next day found out there wasn't loss of life. If there was loss of life, and then we had uh, gone and bombed them, they would have bombed us, we would have bombed them, and then, then what? So I mean, I'm, as someone who was in that situation where you take a decision, no one should be thinking on those lines when you have the sort of weapons the two countries have. It should never get to that stage. That is the whole point. The whole point not, is, not, is not a threat. It's just telling the world that you should never get into that position. So we have had uh, President Trump's special envoy on Iran here this week, Brian Hook. Uh, we've been at sessions with President Rouhani you mentioned the dangers of miscalculation in your own area. That's another area where the dangers of miscalculation are very high, and there's a stalemate. All the questions from the audience are on the issue of Kashmir, with one saying, isn't it obvious the world has chosen to stand by India, not Pakistan? Could you talk a little bit more broadly in the region on this danger of miscalculation and you mentioned the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who seems central to this. How are we going to unknot what is now growing tensions that uh, have really seemed to have hair trigger potential? If you look at history, all wars are miscalculations. Every war, you, you look at it, I mean, when, uh, when Pakistan when the U.S. Uh, decided to invade in Afghanistan and we were, all the political party heads were called over by General Musharraf and he was saying that, look, you know, we, we should join the American war on terror and we should help them. So we asked him that, uh, how long is this going to be? He said, it'll only be a few weeks. And so did, he said, the Americans are saying it'll only be a few weeks in Afghanistan. You don't know the weapons they've got. Thank you. So 70,000 Pakistanis dead 12 years later, you know, we had lost $150 billion plus to the economy. And the Americans are still in Afghanistan and the war still hasn't ended. Every war, every war in my opinion is miscalculated miscalculated in a way that you go after one issue mm. to resolve it, 
it gives birth to other issues. You know, the whole war was supposed to go after Al-Qaeda. ISIS came into being. I really believe that anyone who thinks to settle issues through war, they need to have their head examined. And Iran, and let me tell you about Iran. Uh, Iran, you know, if this thing starts, first of all, for developing world, you know, here's some, for, uh, for the most difficult one year has been to try and get our budget to balance our economy to sort of get some, some uh, semblance of sanity in it. If this, uh, if this war starts in the Gulf, just the oil prices are going to cause more poverty in the world than anything else. So therefore, <clears throat> everything we should do to avoid the, this conflict, everything. Mm. So the audience is asking continuing tough questions on this front, um, including um, something that I'll preface with a quote by a Sufi poet. So Rumi, I know you you're, appreciate Sufi poetry who said 800 years ago, beyond rightness and beyond wrongness, there is a field. I'll meet you there. So are there ideas out of the box that we're not thinking about? And again, I know there's a specific issue, but you came in and I think were voted in with a lot of expectations of bringing a, a new kind of approach to these issues. Uh are you talking about resolving the... Uh, India and Pakistan. <clears throat> well, but India, look, let me just explain to you. What is happening in India is, uh, is a catastrophe. India has been taken over by an extreme racist ideology. If, you, if any of you Google RSS, which, was, which is what has taken over India. Narendra Modi is a life member of this party called RSS. It was formed in 1925. It was, uh, 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 they were inspired by Hitler, Mussolini, by the Nazi party. It, 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 they believed in the racial superiority of Hindus. They believed that India, should be, India is only a land for Hindus, not for other minorities. Uh, they believed in the, that the Muslims uh, were invaders and uh, there was this hatred against Muslims for centuries old rule which Muslims, when they ruled India, also against the Christians because of the British rule. So it was very clear the, the, the admiration for this racist ideology. It was the same ideology that assassinated Mahatma Gandhi in 1948. This was, RSS was outlawed in India as a terrorist organization three times. Unfortunately, that ideology today has taken over India. And therefore, when we tried all, the, all our efforts for one year, I wrote letters, I spoke to him, gave statements. Uh, I realized that it, you know, we, have, we had come across an ideology. You can't reason with this. You cannot reason with a racist ideology. Because the mere fact, and it's, Behind it is arrogance. Simple fact that you feel your race is superior to others is arrogance. And my worry is that it's arrogance that 
that may, uh, that may uh, let you make miscalculations. And this is a miscalculation, this going into Kashmir, putting 8 million people in an open prison with 900,000 troops. I, a sane mind doesn't do this. In, in, in Assam, 1.9 Muslims have just been deregistered as, as Indian citizens. Now, it, he hasn't thought through, what are they going to do? Because Bangladesh has refused to take them. So what are these 1.9 million people going to do? And just the fact that they are saying it's, they have rejected the, uh, the Nehru and Gandhi philosophy of pluralism and secularism. So where is it headed now? What are 180 million Muslims going to do in India? Or for that matter, Christians or Sikhs? So my worry is also for Indians. What are sensible Indians, what are they thinking about this? And this ideology is, from six years where this started, it's going to keep getting worse. Germany from 1930 to 1934 changed from a liberal democracy to a totalitarian uh, fascist state. And unfortunately, if, you, if you're following what is happening in India, it is scary. I, I know India better than any Pakistani because I used to play cricket there and I had friendships and I used to go there a lot. And I, I, have, I can't believe, I can't recognize this India now. And those Muslims who, when I used to be playing cricket there, who used to tell me that it's a big mistake, Pakistan, you know, we have, India is a bigger society and so on. Today, they're all saying that Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, was right. This guy, Abdullah, who's just been 80 year old, who's been put into prison, who all the time supported that Kashmir should be part of India, today he's saying that there is a big mistake that they joined India. So it is a very dangerous direction India has taken. And, and therefore, and no, I'm, all I'm saying is that uh, the Western media should take note of this. Because, uh, you know, ideologies like that are always dangerous. Whenever you have an ideology like that, racial superior, superiority and hatred against another race, it always does damage to the world. Mm. You're listening to Asia In-Depth, Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan in conversation with Asia Society President Josette Shirin. Just a couple of days before Khan's appearance at the Asia Society, India's top diplomat, Subramanian Jaishankar, also appeared on our stage. He argued that the so-called, quote, special status of Kashmir had always been a temporary arrangement, that India had every right to revoke that status in the name of improving the situation in Kashmir. And he repeated that accusation against Pakistan, calling it, quote, a country which has created an entire industry of terrorism to deal with the Kashmir issue, unquote. You can watch that interview in its entirety on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Asia Society. That's youtube.com slash Asia Society. Now let's get back to Imran Khan and Josette Sheeran. Why do you think Prime Minister Modi traveled to Pakistan early on? And then, of course, there was the attack in India that really seemed to change that trajectory that he seemed to be trying to pursue. And we had the Foreign Minister Jai Shankar in here this week who had equally harsh words for Pakistan saying that Pakistan has turned Kashmir into an industry of terrorism. How did we go from Modi 
trip to Pakistan to this, and why, I mean, where is that Modi? Well, first of all, Narendra Modi came to Pakistan on the invitation of Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif. While he visited Pakistan, not once did he not stop trying to make, push Pakistan into being declared a terrorist state. And he tried to differentiate between the Prime Minister and the Pakistan Army. He kept saying that the Prime Minister is, is a good man, but the Pakistan Army is a terror, is a terror organization. Uh, look, what has happened? You must understand what has happened since 9-11. Since 9-11, this word Islamic terrorism has been used by, by governments to delegitimize Muslim freedom struggles. Legitimate Muslim freedom struggles have been demonized by just calling them Islamic terrorism. Simple question. There are 900,000 troops in India. Are they there to fight terrorism? I mean, they are saying that uh, one of their defense ministers said there are 500 terrorists lined up on the border to go into India. What are 500, uh, 500 uh, uh, terrorists going to do when there are 900,000 troops there? The 900,000 troops are there to control the population. They're not fighting terrorism. Pakistan fought probably the most difficult war against terror. As I said, we lost 70,000 people. We, we never used that many uh, soldiers. We, you, for counterterrorism, you don't need 900,000 mm. troops. It's to control the population. And what is actually happening is India is deflecting the state terrorism, which is what is happening in India right now. Uh, you look, read the Human Rights Report. There are two reports on what is happening in the uh, Kashmir Valley. There are two mass graves discovered and so on. So they're deflecting the attention by as what has happened is the magic word Islamic terrorism, that it's all because of terrorism, that uh, they're using this uh, force. Unfortunately, uh, the UN has not played its part. It should be sending observers there. Let, let them find out what really is happening. Otherwise, India will keep whatever oppression is happening in, in Kashmir. They'll blame it on terrorists from Pakistan. Two out-of-the-box ideas from the audience. One, why not grant Pakistan-administered Kashmir freedom and force India to change its approach? Sorry? Why, why not? not grant Pakistan-administered Kashmir freedom and force India, therefore, to also change its approach? <laughs> India has already said that they, the, uh, the target is Pakistan side of Kashmir now. Now that they've annexed Kashmir, uh, I believe that the, what is the future for Kashmir should be decided by people of Kashmir. Whatever the people of Kashmir want. Whatever they want, it's their, it's their right to decide. Initially, the UN res, 11 UN resolutions uh, 70 years ago, they were all about uh, Kashmir, people of Kashmir to decide to, whether to join Pakistan or India. I would add that they, they should be allowed to decide whatever they want. Mm -hmm. So this is a, you know, an open offer. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't India and Pakistan both allow them, Kashmiris, to decide? Mm -hmm. 
Next questioner. There's been talk about Pakistan forming relations with Israel, and we know the winds of change are blowing through the Middle East. Is this in the cards, and why? Uh, I'm afraid I don't know where this has come from. It's, uh, it's not. Pakistan uh, has a very straightforward position, and it was a founder of Pakistan, Qaeda Azam, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who was very clear that you know there has to be a just settlement, a homeland for Palestinians, before Pakistan can recognize Israel. President Trump, I believe, said yesterday, Pakistan and India should just come together. It sounded like the, uh, the Nike ad, just do it. <laughs> You've mentioned the possible role he could play. What would you like to see the United States and President Trump doing? And you also mentioned the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. What role could they play? Uh, not the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. That oh. was just between Iran and okay. uh, to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to ease the tensions with Iran. Um, well, first of all, I had to explain to President Trump the Kashmir issue, and <laughs> the uh, and I think the second time yeah, when I had a long chat with him, I managed to explain it to him, and that's why he says that it's a it's a difficult, it's a complicated issue. <laughs> but uh, what U.S. can do is just put its weight behind the United Nations Security Council. And the, this, look, the, I keep repeating, UN has given their resolutions uh, that it's a disputed territory and had given Kashmiris their right. That right was not given. They are now suffering right now. UN has to take, uh, you know, UN came into being precisely for mm -hmm. this uh, dispute like Kashmir, which has a chance of a much bigger uh, 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 um, strife in the future if this is not addressed. So UN must uh, act, act now. And if, the, if this gets worse, it'd be a total failure of UN. You said this week, the world counts on the US to put out the flames. But you also said, after 9-11, it was a huge mistake for Pakistan to do a 180-degree turn toward the US. Um, it's a little hard to reconcile these two. What Explain. Actually, it was very straightforward. In 1980s, we trained the Mujahideen, the US came in, we, the United States backed Pakistan, in fact, all the Western countries. And we, we trained the Mujahideen. In fact, I remember in London, there was a big dinner by uh, an aristocrat raising money for the Mujahideen, and they were Mujahideen then were celebrated as heroes. In fact, Ronald Reagan, when he invited the five Mujahideen leaders to Washington, I quote him, he said they reminded him of the moral equivalents of the founding fathers of US. <laughs> so, they were heroes. Now, come 1989, Soviets retreat, leave Afghanistan, the Americans pack up and leave, and Pakistan is left with a lot of those who would have reminded Reagan of, of them. <laughs> and in the end, uh, we were slapped with sanctions, Pressler sanctions, in 91. Pakistan had four million refugees by then. We had these militant groups, you know, all 
trained and dressed up and nowhere to go. <laughs> and we had sectarian groups uh, in Pakistan who started fighting each other. So Pakistan became a dangerous place because of this, because of the 80s of participating in the Afghan Jihad. And then, of course, uh, you know, Pakistan got uh, aid and Pakistan, you, you know, the, and also money to train these, uh, these groups. Now, come 9-11, again, the U.S. turns up uh, and uh, uh, wants Pakistan's help. They occupy Afghanistan. And I never forget when we were discussing with, you know, there was a lot of debate going on, should we become part of this or not? And, and we said that, you know, we were abandoned last time. Most of us said, you know, what guarantees we will again be abandoned this time? And I never forget, George Bush gave a statement that this time will not be the same. We will not abandon Pakistan. And so, of course, uh, he joined it. Why did I not want him to join? Because now we had trained these groups. They were, they were trained. They were indoctrinated in jihad. So uh, uh, foreign occupation in Afghanistan was jihad against the Soviets. Now, when the Americans landed up there, how are we going to tell them that now it's terrorism, then it was uh, mm. jihad, freedom fighting? So because, because of that, I felt we would have had much more leverage on these groups if we had stayed neutral. The moment we joined the American side, they turned against Pakistan. And that's why we lost 70,000 people. We're getting the red flags. Just, just one point. Do you, is, is China the strongest ally of Pakistan at this point? Well, we, you know, when we uh, assumed power, uh, I, I think never had Pakistan's economy been as bad. Uh, so I have to say that China came to support us at, when we had hit the rock bottom. And they have really helped us in every way. Um, not only did they provide us uh, 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 help with our foreign exchange reserves because we were about to default. Uh, but also, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative has sort of evolved where they are helping us uh, in agriculture with our productivity. Are you worried about sovereignty issues? Are you ownership? Not at all. Absolutely not, because nowhere, nowhere have been, been uh, helped uh, on some condition that you have to uh, you know, do this, this, because we, we help nowhere. And if anything, uh, you know, they have gone out of their way to help us in technology transfer. Uh, they're helping us, as I said, in agriculture. Uh, they helped us in uh, financing uh, certain projects. So, uh, and, and the debt part, by the way, is quite low. You know, everyone kept saying that, you know, we are, we are so in debt to China, but that's not the case. So we started with a Sufi poet quote. I'm going to end with one, Muhammad Iqbal, the spiritual father of Pakistan, as some call him. He said, nations are born in the hearts of poets. They prosper and die in the hands of politicians. <laughs> you, you're ending your first year. You have four more to go. Do you believe, are you hopeful that uh, the politician's power is as great as maybe you hoped coming into office? I completely agree with that. <laughs> uh, you know, I always think, what sort of a person goes around asking for votes? <laughs> <laughs>
I think you know, maybe you, know, you, you no, 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 I'm, I'm had serious. to do that. I'm serious. Yes. No, 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 mm -hmm. I'm, no, there's a difference. There, <laughs> there's a difference. There are two types of politicians. One is the career politician. Career politician is, is uh, disliked everywhere. Why? Because he compromises all the time. Because to stay in power, he has to ask votes, he has to lie to people, he has to do a lot of times uh, uh, unethical stuff to uh, get votes. Um, you know, he has to bribe people and all these sort of worst sort of things happen. And, and so that is, that is the ugly side of politics. And therefore, uh, they compromise. The whole thing about what Iqbal says is, you know, why do, they, why do dreams die with politicians? Because, uh, you know, they come up, they, they bring, a, they, they sell a dream, but then they keep compromising and making such compromises that the dream, dream disappears. Whereas, uh, who, who I respect and who I admire in my life are, for instance, Gandhi, Jinnah, Qaeda Azam, for me, uh, he, he will always be a role model because he didn't need politics. He came in for a mission. He was, in the end, dying of, uh, of cancer. And yet, he, he didn't let anyone know because of the dream, the dream of Pakistan. Similarly, Nelson Mandela. <laughs> because Jinnah wasn't doing it for power. He was doing it to achieve a, a goal. And similarly, if you read uh, about Nelson Mandela, I mean, he could have compromised so many times on the way, but the dream of one man, one vote was never compromised. He never compromised on that. So you have to differentiate between the two. The unethical politician, you know, who, uh, who's only, who lies to get into power and, you know, <laughs> begs for votes and promises everything. And then, then the whole purpose is power. And then you, these idealists, throughout history, people have come who have come up with a certain dream and then they, they never compromise on the dream. And they are the, so they are the ones who Iqbal, uh, the, the, the wrong ones he's talking about, but they are the, the dreamers. And always and always and always, it's the dreamers who change the world. It's never the sort of career politicians. That'll do it for this week's episode. You can check out our show page at asiasociety.org forward slash podcast and keep up with what's going on with us at Facebook and Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at Asia Society. In next week's episode, the beloved travel writer Pico Iyer, author of many books, talks about his adopted country, Japan, with James Shaheen, editor of the Buddhist publication Tricycle. Here's a sneak peek. I never forget when I wrote my book about the Dalai Lama, one of the things that most humbled and startled me was to learn that when he concluded his flight into exile in 1959, 14 or 16 days of the highest mountains on earth, and he finally arrived at the Indian border, he turned to his younger brother, who was accompanying him, as you know, on that trip, and he said, now we are free. I'm Tom Nagorski. We'll see you next time.